This is Inside the Box. Merry Christmas, everybody out there. Um, We are here today for our Inside the Box Christmas special. Uh, This is Trevor, and I am here with my good friend, David Blakesley. David, Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Happy uh, however folks are celebrating. It's a great time of year. (laughs) Yes, it's a a great time to talk a little bit of Bergman and uh, just kind of wrap up uh, this really unique year that we've been through. Uh, with a really fantastic masterpiece of cinema. So, yeah, happy to be here with you once again. Uh, kind of a quick turnaround from our last episode, which I just yeah. uh, kind of rechecked <laughs> out the other day just to you know remember how it all turned out. So, but yeah, happy to be here. Well, me too. We spoke, I think, last Christmas about doing Fanny and Alexander as a Christmas special. And, you know, that seemed like forever ago, except for it also seems like we just did that and it came really fast. Here we are. Here we are talking yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the year flew by and that, that's, that's kind of the, feels like, yeah, the appropriate sort of pondering time, prep time, and yeah. now here it is uh, time to go. Well, and, and as I, you know, people who checked out the title of the podcast and I just said it, we are here to talk about Ingmar Bergman's 1982 film, Fanny and, Fanny and Alexander. Now, why are we talking about one film? This is inside the box. We're we're <laughs> talking about box sets, right? I mean, uh, did did we did we decide that this was a cheat, or is this an official box set? This, to this is mind? a box set. I mean, there if you, you look at it, you've got a five and a half hour main feature. You've got a three hour cut. You know, at the theatrical mm-hmm. release. Then you've got the Peter Cowie commentary, which I think deserves its own sort of mm-hmm. standalone listen. Uh, you've got the making of Fanny and Alexander, another feature-length uh, making of documentary, which actually has its own spine number for Pete's sake, and then all <laughs> kinds of supplemental material. So yes, this is indeed, this is a box set. There's about 12 hours of, of solid film viewing uh, that you got to get through to say, I've watched <laughs> this set. <laughs> so yes. Now, Blu-ray owners, though, that's not its own... Uh, spine number is that right am i am i right there well let's is see it... i think uh they may have combined them i let me get the box out here oh you're right they they put them all under 261 on the blu-ray but i have this beautiful old dvd uh relic here where it's 261 <laughs> for the box 262 for the tv version 263 for the theatrical and 264 for uh, the uh, making of and all the supplemental features. So there's there's four spine numbers on this one. There folks. you go. That, <laughs> yeah, this is one of our biggest boxes yet. That's right. <laughs> and, and to an extent, we, we're kind of cracking into another box. The big yeah. one, the, oh. to me, you know, the box set of Criterion. It's the, the Ingmar Bergman, the cinema of Ingmar Bergman, uh, which we've not really decided whether or how or if or when or anything like that we would ever cover such a monumental box set. Uh, but it's nice to be able to pull one out here and cover Fanny and Alexander. <laughs> yeah, we'll break it down into slightly manageable chunks here. But this this <laughs> film is is definitely uh, a deep and vast, uh, it's a banquet, which I think is actually kind of mm-hmm. opens up uh, that that introductory segment there, the, the Christmas feast mm-hmm. and, and all the good eats that you see uh, lavishly spread out before us on the screen. So, um, yeah, the, the themes that are touched on here, uh, as this kind of summation of Bergman's cinematic career, uh, it, it really is a, a festival of, of all of life, you know, um, you know, birth and death and, and everything in between, uh, religion, the arts, spirituality, 
dreams, magic, romance, uh, erotic attraction, uh, worldly power plays, uh, competition, rivalry, uh, you know, all of that, you know, the, the, the impressions of childhood, the, uh, the withering of old age, the vigors of life and, the the fear of its decline as we, as we get on in years, it's, it's all right there and it's all handled <laughs> so brilliantly by, uh, a great screenplay, um, you know, top-notch casting, uh, every part is just perfectly realized. Um, all, of course, all the aesthetics, the, the set designs, uh, wins Academy Awards, of course, Sven Nykvist is doing his thing cinemat- cinematically. It, you know, there's there's just so many uh, uh, wonderful traits that that can be praised and celebrated uh, by, I think, most people who've watched this movie, who followed Bergman's journey, recognize that this is about as brilliant of a career summation as a uh, as any artist could ever hope for, uh, but especially in his chosen medium of cinema. I was I was going to start with thinking you know, this is fairly shallow. No, just kidding. <laughs> just, just kidding. a little you... one-off there, a little screw you to the audience as he makes his exit, right? Uh, no, I, that, that's a bad joke. But as you went there, everything you said, I'm like nodding along. And I realized, man, this is like a, a world contained in, in a film. Very much so. This and Peter Cowie talks about this a little bit in his in his commentary about it feeling, you know, almost almost like a, a, a work of literature too. And I'm not trying to com- contain them both. I, I, I film and literature both do different things and similar things and all of that. So I don't think that's like a compliment that oh this feels like a book. You know that, and anything that doesn't is therefore less than. What I mean by that is. You know, some of my favorite books just feel like um, feel like they contain too much, hmm. uh, or rather that the book itself is insufficient to contain everything that that it's actually actually has. Or like Hamlet, you know, as a play, it's like this is this isn't a play. This is the play's just a, a minor vehicle to to, to be a, a a full life almost. And that's kind of hmm. how I feel about Fanny and Alexander. As we look at it, you're right. It has all of that in it. And yet, strangely, it's it's digestible. You know, you can sit down and watch it and you, you spend time with these characters in there. Uh, even in the shortened television version, you have fairly lengthy scenes where you're really getting um, a moment between characters, whether it's a stressed moment or an amorous moment <laughs> mm-hmm. or a playful mm-hmm. moment. You get so much of that. Somehow he has put it all together in a way that that flows and and comes together. I it is a masterpiece, you know. And, and I don't think either of us are gonna uh, rock the boat by saying that. You know, that's not a not our hot take. I guess I guess I am curious though. I mean, this is in a way his a summation of his career. He did mm-hmm. make some more films, and especially for, for like television. Uh, but he himself saw this as his his swan song, essentially, you know, the the end of it. And that's why there was a big, big to do about it when it was being made. He had come back to Sweden after some years that he had spent away filming elsewhere and almost like exiled because of some legal issues and whatnot. But he had come back home. He hires uh, people to make the making of <laughs> documentary mm-hmm. as they're making it. Peter Cowie is there on 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 site to kind of watch this this happen, and 
It does. It feels like the summation of a career, even though he did continue on for another couple of decades to make art and, you know, particularly in the theater, but, but also make things that we can watch that you can watch in the cinema of Ingmar Bergman set. But this, this really does to me feel like the capstone on a brilliant career. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he recognized, you know, he made the distinction between even television movies and cinematic spectacles, you know, his reputation, uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and into the 70s just continued to ramp up to the point where he felt the pressure of having to you know accomplish at this high level where everything had to hit and I've already kind of listed all the superlatives about this production but he recognized he was getting up there in years I think he was in his 60s uh, when, mm-hmm. when this was made so it wasn't like he was at the end of his life but just the the uh taxation of and no pun intended on his legal issues there but but <laughs> how, how taxing that the, the physical process was and and all the creative effort and energy to, that went into making a film that he knew would would pass muster would would live up to not only the external expectations of critics and his audience his fans but also his own his own standards so it's kind of like he just poured everything he had into this um you know the creative impulse was was way more than he could ever just shut down. And so he, he wrote novels, he wrote screenplays. He turned some of those stories over to other directors to make on his behalf. Like we've said, he did the small, you know, smaller scale television films with, with a smaller cast and all of that. So he certainly had a lot of, um, you know, expression left in him. But I think this one here, he just said, yeah, let's just, let's go out with a flourish. And uh, I think he just, he just nailed it. It's, it really is quite an amazing, um, experience that i've had you know just going over all of all those different versions yeah you know i talked about all the different hours of film and i i, I did i watched all of that i, I uh the supplements mm-hmm. and everything so we're probably not going to have time tonight to get into a breakdown of all of those extra bits except to say that they each um cast wonderful illuminating light on what we have going on here this this unfolding pageant before us that is really just so sumptuous so rich uh, just so full of vitality that uh, it is almost overwhelming. And then it's not maybe until you get into that second, third or fourth rewatch mm-hmm. where you can really start, you know, letting the story do its thing and just focus on, on the, on the background, the, the atmospheres, the aesthetics, uh, the wit and the incisiveness of the dialogue. You know, I mean, always just so much, uh, so much richness that you get when these characters just start kind of <laughs> laying into each other mm-hmm. uh, expressing these these thoughts these these concepts of of life and what it's like that many of us harbor but perhaps lack the uh, articulate gifts to express them with such brilliance and such precision uh, as as these different characters uh, kind of they take on their types they kind of fulfill different functions in this large network of, of family relationships as well as relationships within the larger community and so, yeah, there's there's just so much to to dig into here um, for this hour, or whatever will fly by. But let's get into <laughs> it and, and just talk about uh, this this fantastic film. <laughs> Where to even begin? I maybe with Christmas, maybe yeah, with the beginning yeah. of the film, right? To, yeah. To me, this is a Christmas movie, even though the entire thing doesn't take place at Christmas. A pretty good chunk of it does. You could watch the first episode for Christmas and be happy, I think. Mm-hmm. And it really does take up a third even of the um, 
you know, it's about a third of the television version is that that celebration of Christmas as we meet our our large cast of characters. I think Peter Cowie says there are 60 speaking parts mm-hmm. in the film. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and go go back to like something like Through a Glass Darkly where there are four people. <laughs> right. right, right. <laughs> Still a brilliant film, but you can kind of see that Bergman knows how to play with whatever he's got, you know, to, to do the range. But you're meeting all of these these characters. And in particular, you know, we start by meeting Alexander on, you know, the, the day before Christmas, I think anyway, it's right in that time before but Christmas I Eve, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's alone in the house. It's haunting almost. You're not sure what's going on the first time you watch it. I remember it was mm-hmm. 20, man, a little more even than 20 years ago that I first watched this movie and knew nothing about it other than there, it's Ingmar Bergman. I just watched Winter Light. I want to watch now another one. And here's here's this one. And I put it in and dang it, if it didn't also have that haunting, almost like rushing me back to my own childhood in a way that I could never mm-hmm. do in, in my conscious state. Right. He pulls me back and I'm watching this young boy wander through a house trying to pass the time. Um, also the world of the imagination and of all that is that he's seeing around him, which can be figments of his imagination, but also just, he's a kid, you know, he's, he's alone. He's going to see things. He's going to see a statue move maybe, which is based on an actual memory Bergman has of his youth of thinking he saw a statue move in the corner of the room. Mm -hmm. It's, it's amazing how much it feels like, like a dream of my youth, you know, that somewhat unconscious part of me that I don't remember, but I can still feel when I see it. Yeah, you're you're a kid wandering the halls of this opulent uh, apartment mansion, whatever it is. But it's just it's just bursting with decorations. You mentioned the statue. There's there's tapestries. There's paintings <laughs> on the wall. The rich furniture, uh, all the decor. You know, you can tell that they're gearing up for a celebration of some sort. Of, you know, and mm-hmm. and and I think the Christmas thing comes through pretty clearly. You know, pretty early on that this is kind of a year end festivity. A uh, very yeah. traditional Victorian era Swedish Christmas. It's set in 1907 uh, in the in the in the home of a very wealthy woman. She's a widow now. She's uh, been an actress and kind of a notable public figure. Uh, she and her late husband had acquired a fortune, and now they've got three young three three men three three sons who are basically carrying on the family name. And you've got. Oscar, who's the the manager of a theater, kind of following in his mother's footsteps, although not to the same degree of acclaim and and fame that she had achieved. Uh, You've got Carl. I think he might be the middle brother. He's a professor, an academic, trapped in a loveless marriage and just full of all kind of inner angst and turmoil due to his frustration, his hostility, his self-loathing. And then you've got Gustav, who is kind of the carefree, uh, rambunctious man. He's a restaurateur. He so he he's in the you know hospitality business. Uh, he he's a philanderer, but he's got a very understanding wife, to put it mildly, <laughs> who sort of indulges uh, his his interests uh, for the sake of stability and and just because he's a kind-hearted man, and she recognizes that she may not do any better. Uh, and and probably within the confines of this society, divorce would have just been so unseemly. She just doesn't see it necessary, nor does she feel 
obliged to try to constrain her husband from his uh, you know, promiscuous ways. So that's really the dynamics of this family setup. But uh, Fanny and Alexander, uh, their mother is uh, Emily, and she's the wife of Oscar. So she also is involved in the theater. She's an actress and has, uh, you know, again, achieved a reputation of her own. And, uh, and that's really, you know, what we're thrust into as, as this holiday festivity gets underway, uh, as Alexander is kind of, you know, first kind of wandering the, the rooms before all the guests arrive, you do have that palpable air of mystery and magic and, uh, you know, kind of almost this, this ghostly or otherworldly, you know, the magic of Christmas, I guess, to invoke mm-hmm. a cliche there, except it's not maybe in the commercialized way that we might you know, think of your typical, you know, 21st century Christmas movie and your Hallmark variety, or even your more traditional, you know, Santas and elves and, and that kind of thing. This has a little bit more of that old world, even sort of semi-paganistic type of um, atmosphere to it because of all that that brooding overlay of uh, kind of a, there's a kind of a spiritual dimension that's being tapped into here, as well as the, uh, the, the wonder of, of, of theatrical technology, you know, the, the mm-hmm. puppets, the, uh, the, the magic lantern that, that, that Alexander uses at one point to conjure images. So all, all of this creative uh, stuff is just kind of mixing and, and meshing together and, and giving rise to all kinds of thoughts and emotions as we get into the celebration, into the wee hours of the morning on this Christmas Eve. <laughs> yeah. All the way up until it's time to get up for the, <laughs> Christmas uh, to go to church. <laughs> That's right, exactly. It's a and it, it is amazing. It's the wonder. It's the it's the bustle of everybody coming together and celebrating. And this these children getting a glimpse. I mean, they can see some of the flirtations. Oh, they yeah. don't understand it necessarily, but they can see it. Later on, Bergman will take us behind those doors and we'll see a little bit more of what's going on. But for these kids, it's just this this just overwhelming uh, sense of, uh, of place. Like you said, all those decorations, the opulence of the place, even when it isn't decorated for Christmas, must be somewhat overwhelming. But, but not, in a, not in a bad way, not in an anxiety-inducing way, more in a look at this whole world. You know, this yeah. is a, I could spend a day in a room and... and be curious about so many things and never get tired in there. Mm-hmm. He can fit under the table and see everything from a completely different perspective mm-hmm. because he's that small. And it's just this, this sense of possibility, this sense of wonder, this taste of the adult lives with all of the, um, you know, being able to go to bed at night and get a little upset at your, your uh, favorite, uh, I don't know, you know, nanny i don't know what what my my is <laughs> yeah, um yeah, yeah. but uh that she's not going to let you share her bed that night because she's got somewhere else to be <laughs> yeah, yeah. well right it's, it, and it is it's like the, the children are in this almost like this paradise situation i mean there's festivity and singing and snacks and treats and gifts under the tree mm-hmm. i mean it's it's everything that a child might dream of and yet here come these pesky adults dragging all of their baggage <laughs> all of their emotional you know complications <laughs> into this into this fairyland you know uh where there is they're the ogres almost (laughs) (laughs) exactly you know there's there's tensions there's squabblings you can sort of feel a little bit of uh, unease in the air as some of the uh you know as some of the 
uh, feuds and, and things kind of verbal up over the surface or or are kind of just tucked away and repressed but you just sort of feel that there's something going on yeah and and then these uncles and and kind of how they interact with the kids themselves there's quite a, quite a trip yeah. <laughs> well let me ask you this sure there's all of that stuff going on and you do get a sense of the complexities and some of the issues that you know adulthood brings mm-hmm. it still feels affirming Oh, to yeah. me, it's, this Christmas it's... scene in particular still feels positive. It's not there's there's this stuff, but it's not overlaid with dread. Like you, like honestly, you might expect with the Bergman movie. When's this going to turn right. into a nightmare? Oh, um, it comes. <laughs> it does. We get there. Yeah, it yeah. does, but not necessarily at Christmas. Even even when the you know um, Oscar mm-hmm. has his attack there after you know running around and doing all that. Yeah. And you know what's coming for him because you know this is a movie. We know what's happening. Uh, right. This this magic won't won't last. It still f- doesn't quite give in all the way to despair or dread at that moment. It still comes back to the celebration, right. and I think that's the mood that that pops out. So you know, again, if listeners are, are for the first time thinking, "I'm going to watch this part one," you know, because David and Trevor said so for yeah. Christmas. I still think you'll be happy when you're done with oh, it. Oh yeah, it is. It's it's very it's very joyous. I mean, even even the conflicts that that mm-hmm. you know erupt, they're between, funny in a way. They're, 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 they're hilarious, really. Yeah, I mean, probably the one with Carl and and his wife. Uh, the I can't remember her name, but the German woman. She's German. Yeah, that that one's pretty painful. Uh, but even then, it's just so absurd. I mean, you know, it might be a little shocking uh, how rudely he treats his wife and how yeah. she just sort of sits there and takes it um yeah <laughs> i was watching with julie she was kind of grinding her teeth and gasping at how much of an ass this guy was <laughs> but but you know be that was what as it may it's 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 almost comical and just how how ludicrous and how uh locked into this kind of negative cycle uh, of acrimony uh this couple has has landed and again you know there's a lot so there are a lot of little moments here that will tap into various aspects of our own personal experience i think that that is that to me it is affirming because it shows the commonness uh, of so many of the situations we we face in life both the joys and the heartbreaks and the sorrows you know yeah, but but it but there's a fullness to it all that I think is is as you say ultimately very affirming and and, and very celebratory. Well, and I think without not all the way, but without judgment, which we've talked about with Bergman before, he is yeah. able to present so many of these terrible relationships without necessarily feeling like he's preaching to you about it all. He seems to just be presenting, yeah, some of some of this the heart of some of these conflicts to us in a way that feels compassionate, you know, yeah. to, to really kind of get in there and, and understand some of the suffering in an empathetic way versus a judgmental way. It just comes off that way to me, which again, I take as fairly positive, even if it's sometimes painful. Yeah. These are the kind of traps that people often fall into. You know, they, they follow a certain impulse or a certain passion and boom, you know, it's good for a while. And then all of a sudden it turns into a problem, you know, and it's just, you know, to me, it's, it's just very illuminating. It's just about the, you know, kind of the, the quandaries of life and, and the, the, the challenges of, of balancing relationships, being true to yourself, being considerate towards other people, uh, you know, 
getting the good stuff out of life. You know, I think of uh, Gustav Adolf and, and his uh, kind of, uh, you know, his very erotically charged ways. I mean, he's a good time Charlie. He's very entertaining. He's very hilarious and very funny. But, you know, he does impose on on the young women. He does put put some strains on his wife and he does get himself into some pretty significant complications as a result even though i think all in all he emerges pretty unscathed at the end of it all just because he is kind of like this this uh, happy-go-lucky guy who's just kind of bobbing through life and finds a way to you know keep his head above water despite all the turmoil that's uh, unfolding around him whereas carl the more serious of of the three brothers uh you know he he seems to be kind of a a melancholy soul you know uh you know now he can let his hair down he he he, and that's the other thing another element of this film that there's even fart jokes in it i mean it's just like (laughs) what doesn't bergman pack into this thing but he 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 can have fun with the kids and and uh you know kind of play that play that angle as he's kind of uh, using uh, all the overindulgence of food and drink uh, uh, and playing some games with his flatulence there to, to the amusement of the children and, of course, to the audience as well. Blowing out the candles like Oju, right? Did he think Oju can't be the <laughs> only right. one who has this? Um, yeah. And it does... I, I'm going to return to Christmas just because this mm-hmm. is our Christmas special sure, show. Sure. There's another part, too. Th- these kids... The celebration is kind of for them. It's a bringing together mm-hmm. of the family, despite all of these issues that are going on, despite their knowledge that, hey, this isn't perfect. There are some of you we kind of wish we didn't have to see, but we're family. We're, we're going to come together and celebrate, and you're going to go play with the kids. Maybe you don't even know them that well, but you you know, you know recognize those are the children, mm-hmm. and it's Christmas. Um, there's there's just that sense for the kids of, of wonder, but for the adults that this is another night, but one to be indulged in, right? This is a night of indulgence. And of course that's going to change um, pretty soon. You know, the way of life that's presented in this first, this first act essentially is going to be very much uh, taken away and, and almost shown the opposite here in a few minutes. But that night, I want to live that night um not yeah. the not all of the you know indulgences but the beauty of the the sleighs pulling up as it's still the afternoon mm-hmm. and then when the gas lighters or the you know the ga- the men go out and start lighting the gas lamps and that is filmed so beautifully oh it's exquisite yes. it and it just feels so peaceful and it's mm-hmm. it's that sense of rest of tonight you can relax tonight you can indulge and here it's coming, you know, here's the light, ca- camera action, you know, <laughs> we're going to yeah, go yeah, right. and, you know, have out some plays, run through the nativity um, and eat some bonbons and, and if, flirt with your neighbor and, <laughs> you know, all these different things. Yeah. yeah. Cut loose. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and celebrate those, these joys of life. It's, it's the, you know, one of the longest, darkest nights of the year. We're and definitely in Uppsala, Sweden, where it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cold and you know filmed on location. Of, yeah, filmed on and location. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, just the, the those atmospherics, all that attention to detail. You know, um, it, it's it's easy to just sort of let it all roll past you until you just think, man, what a what a splendid production they put together <laughs> to to just let you immerse yourself in this in this wonderful enchanted realm now do you ever just watch part one 
because of Christmas? Like, do you um, do you always yeah. watch it throughout, or do you? Because I've done that before in the past, where I'll put it on. Yeah, I have the intention of watching the whole thing. I'm like, oh, it's Christmas. I'll watch Fanny and Alexander. I watch part one, and I don't get to the rest of it, but I still feel. Yeah, fed. I mean, it's it's a commitment. <laughs> yeah, no, the part one is is kind of almost like a good standalone film, mm-hmm. and and uh, and it kind of ends on that note where you've you've just kind of gone through this whole cycle of of a very packed full evening uh getting to know the family and and again just experiencing all of that all of that period detail and all of the the warmth and revelry that 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 fills that that celebratory uh, family gathering and which also includes the servants you know there mm-hmm. this is again a very prosperous household they're are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 people sitting around the table when all is said and done. So it's, it's really quite a spectacular production. And even if you just want to hit the freeze frame and just count the dishes, look at the food that's been prepared <laughs> for this one shot. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, I, I hope that the cast and crew were able to enjoy an actual feast with all that. Once they uh, <laughs> shut the clean lights, lights down and, and said, uh, that's a wrap. Let's, let's, well, let's have a celebration of our own, you know? I, I do like, there's a quote um, somewhere. I can't remember where I read it or, or heard it, but where Bergman goes, yeah, it's a middle-class family. <laughs> maybe, maybe upper middle class. And I'm like, oh, okay, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, he, let's face it. I mean, Bergman himself was a son of privilege. His father was what the pastor to the King of Sweden. And uh, I think one of his brothers was a international diplomat for Sweden. And of course, Bergman himself became pretty well off and, and famous uh, mm-hmm. due to his uh, artistic pursuits in, again, both the theater and cinema. We, we, we focus so much on cinema because those are the artifacts that remain, but the theater was really a huge part of his life. And that's just another aspect of this film that I think mm-hmm. is, is such a delight because, yeah, and, and he certainly brought, he brought the theater into many, many of his other productions over the years, but this one really takes you into the life of the company as a, a cast of actors and all the people behind the scenes who make this thing happen, uh, performing for the audience uh, that doesn't always appreciate what they do, but you keep plugging away at it anyways. And uh, that's just a whole nother dimension of this film that I think is again, you know, very superb and very delightful. Well, now one thing we have not talked about yet is that at this Christmas party, there is another individual who's important to the family and eventually will be incredibly important to the children. And this is a, a Jewish individual named Isaac Jacoby who comes to the festival, to the festivities. He's celebrating with this family. And it's clear that he and Emily have a past. You know, Are you talking about Emily, Helena, right? The, or, yes, I apologize, yeah, Helena. Yeah. It's clear that they have a past. So this is, this is an interesting um, thing for a Christmas party. And I think it's going to be especially pertinent as we go on to the rest of the show do you, or, mm-hmm. you know do you have anything you want to throw in here about uh isaac and his well yeah i mean it's, it's pretty there's a there's a pretty critical conversation between helena the 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 mother the kind of matriarch of this family and isaac this is after you know the the party itself has has run its course uh, the children have been sent to bed. Of course, they have a pretty epic pillow fight, which I just have to say, that was the mm-hmm. very first thing that was shot in this film. Uh, Bergman, for the first time in his career, made a movie that was squarely centered on the lives of and perceptions of children. 
and uh, maybe for his own sake, but certainly for the sake of of the young people that he was working with, <laughs> they just said they had to, let's have a pillow fight with one pillow that's got a little cut in it so that those feathers go flying when they uh, when they swing. And so yeah, just a little interlude there. With uh, but that's that's kind of how the kids kind of you know get disposed of so that Helena and uh, Isaac can have this conversation, which is pretty candidly presented. Yeah, they are former lovers. They were not married, uh, but they had affairs while Helena was married. So there's definitely kind of a, an openness uh, to this uh, somewhat almost aristocratic way of life. Um but because he is a Jewish man and, and very clearly presents as Jewish, he's mm-hmm. not trying to assimilate in any way. Um, you know, that, that, that conversation just really opens up, you know, uh, some interesting dimensions to her past as well as uh, this very, uh, you know, humane, uh, you know, kind of mysterious figure. Uh, he's played by Erlen Josephson, one of the Bergman mainstays. And uh, you know, even though Josephson himself isn't Jewish, I think he does a very, a very good job in portraying that character. Maybe a little bit on the stereotypical side, uh, but that's that's theater for you. And uh, yeah, that, to me, he he does become a pretty critical player, uh, even though you maybe don't recognize the full significance based on that initial exchange. Yeah. Well, should we move on to yeah. the where the film goes from here? Yeah, I think it, it getting definitely into the, changes. Yeah. Well, yeah, we get into the life of the theater after that first segment. I guess the the there are, there are five sequences in the in the film, but I think parts was it part two kind of has two segments within it. Um, the the second part is called the ghost rehearsal, according to the subtitles within the the TV version, and that's is where we see a reenactment of a portion of Hamlet. Uh, where Oscar is is playing the ghost, you know, the the, the king mm-hmm. of Denmark's ghost, uh, but in the middle of of performing that scene, he kind of has a a moment of forgetfulness and then collapses. Apparently, the victim of a stroke. Uh, again, as Trevor said, you know, there was kind of a foreshadowing there when they're having their little faldi roll running through the house, uh, you know, singing their Christmas song. He has to take a break and sit on the steps and catch his has, catch his wind there, and uh, this turns into you know kind of a protracted but but this is a kind of his his bowing out of life as far as um, you know his his ability to you know run the theater company and and lead the family and the flesh although even after he passes away <laughs> we haven't seen the last of him yet but it's yeah you know <laughs> speaking of hamlet and the yeah, role he was well, playing <laughs> very much though i mean again this is this is bergman kind of flexing his literary skills i mean not that hamlet is this obscure nugget that nobody's ever heard of or anything but <laughs> but he's playing with these themes and i think very adroitly uh, there's a certain sophistication to it all but yeah yeah i mean it, you know it's it's pretty moving uh, as we see um, the, the, the head, the male head of the family, I think Oscar is kind of looked at as the oldest brother and kind of the, the head among even his, his brothers there. Um, but now we see Alexander and Fanny having to encounter the reality of death and that this splendid little, uh, feast that they've just enjoyed, um, you know, some days later, um, that, that era of their life is now coming to an end. And what a, what a, change for them to uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, m- moving kind of right along mm-hmm. this opulent uh you you mentioned almost more paganistic Christmas celebration mm-hmm. is going to be replaced by a very austere religion in yeah. another male head of the house uh, their mother does eventually marry and um another man and this is a very different view on how to live it's not the theater anymore guys or, or he's a, he's a bishop you know and and i think mm-hmm. the fact that emily um oscar's now widow um she and in the, in the in the theatrical version there's there's big chunks that are missing here but she does try to run the theater company for a period of time but I think uh, she, in her grieving, and and her grieving is is ferocious. There's a there's a very extended segment where she's really screaming, and it, it's pretty primal stuff there. As she realizes that her husband is dead now, uh, her life is irrevocably changed. But she seems to go through a process of almost. Um, kind of wanting to undo the life that she's known in search of something else. Mm-hmm. Now she, again, she's a very attractive woman. Uh, the Bishop himself is a widower, his wife. And uh, we learn later on and, and two daughters drowned. And so he's also grieving, but he's a man of some prominence in the community, very respectable. Of course, he's a Bishop. I mean, you don't just, you know, decide I'm going to be a Bishop. I mean, that's, that's a, position you you work your way up to you might even think it's competitive in some respects uh, within the lutheran the, the state uh, sanctioned lutheran church of, of sweden so you know to to emily he probably seems like a very attractive catch i mean who else is she going to marry who has that kind of status and 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 even though he's almost a diametrical opposite of her late husband oscar uh, there may be an attraction there on her part, and for his part, you know, he seems to be pretty zealously pursuing her and using all of the uh, the the grandeur and the authority and the certainty that comes with being a, a well-respected man of the cloth. And so, uh, it, it may be a case of opposites attract, or it may be that he's providing her something that. She may have even been missing in her previous relationship. There are intimations in some of the dialogue that that Emily herself has had a number of affairs, that maybe Oscar has had to sort of put up with that, just the way that Alma has had to put up with her husband uh, Gustav's uh, infidelities. And there's even the possibility that that uh, Alexander might not be Oscar's biological child. It's it's very elliptical. It's off to the side. It's not really a major theme there, but you know, th- those seeds are planted if you pay close attention to the dialogue. So Emily is brought into the, the you know, into the relationship with this with this man who in some ways maybe has swept her off her feet. Uh, but then there's the question of the children and uh, how are they going to fit into this new arrangement? And that's where things get really poignant and painful and terrible, which again, as myself being the, the child of a divorced couple, where my both of my parents remarried and I wasn't really happy about either of their choices. That one struck some personal notes with me. I could definitely identify with some of the uh, hardships that Alexander went through as he had to adjust his way of life to the demands of this very stern uh, stepfather. So 
mm-hmm. not sure how much more I'll go into that detail, but I may, I imagine a lot of listeners who maybe grown up in broken homes can can find some commonalities with the situation that uh, Alexander and Fanny find themselves in. Well, I think it's important too to and you you mentioned it a little bit ago. While we're talking about all the things the adults are going through, it's through the eyes of the children that we see so much of it. It's their it's it's a whiplash for for Fanny and Alexander to suddenly be in in this home that is now white with a very authoritarian uh, father figure mm-hmm. who uh, uses corporal punishment, who you know definitely does not allow for any kind of indulgences or. Uh, doesn't give them very much room. And we can recognize that maybe Emily does this because she does, maybe maybe she feels some guilt um, for her past life and feels like maybe some of her, this is this punishment that has landed on her, taken some things away, might be because of that. And so we can maybe understand that she might be looking for something like this, even if it's not in her best interest. Mm-hmm. For her, she might think it is, but the children don't get, to understand that necessarily. I mean, and, and we're seeing it is through kind of the side dialogue that we can get so much of that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's Bergman's brilliance with dialogue and with just mm-hmm. letting us if, and, and it takes, again, I'm kind of with you, maybe a few different viewings to start snagging some of those things rather than just wondering now, who are we talking to now? This is person <laughs> yeah, number yeah. 35 of the cast of 60 <laughs> right, uh, right. to start understanding these relationships and capturing the nuance, but it certainly is worth it throughout. But this, this particular relationship, and I kind of mentioned the literariness of it all earlier on. Again, when I first watched this, I still vividly remember watching her grieve and then watching the children be basically um, shut up for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, because of that and, and how much that didn't feel like I was just watching a scene of a movie, but experiencing it in an extremely oh. uncomfortable way. Yeah. I mean, you, it really is kind of um, a vicarious experience of child abuse, you know, uh, is one way of putting it. But the bishop makes this a condition right from the get-go, right after Emily has accepted his proposal of marriage, he says, well, oh, and by the way, there's there's one thing I need to ask of you, which is that when you come into this home, you bring none of your possessions, no clothes, no toys, none of the you know, decorations. You're, we're going to start your life over. It's going to be clean, It's a full pure. transformation. Exactly. And Emily, you know, pushes back a little bit, but, you know, she's already so far down the road of having accepted this proposal. It's public news. Uh, she's not really able to back out of it now. And, and what are her prospects? I mean, the theater company has not left her with a, a, a sizable inheritance. She doesn't want to just continue sponging off her mother-in-law. This seems like a good arrangement you know that she can live in some degree of comfort or at least so it appears uh but it it turns out to be an incredibly brutal mistake uh that she allowed herself to be drawn into this and you know it it creates intense conflict between her her children and and her husband as she finds herself in this 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 horrible dilemma like you know as it as it goes on she becomes pregnant uh, the bishop, once they are married, now has all the rights of, uh, of a patriarchal society to claim almost like ownership of the children. So even if she were to divorce him, 
uh, he's going to get custody. He's not going to grant her an easy divorce. Um, you know, and, and because he is this stern authoritarian, he is willing to fight to the bitter end uh, and ruin everybody's life just for the sake of coming out on top. You know, uh, he doesn't care how much pain and misery he inflicts as long as he's the one in charge. He's the one who's inflicting the pain and misery mm-hmm. more than anybody else. So it it's, it an, is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, it would be an existential impossibility for him to be anything else. He has to be yeah. the one on top and he's willing to um, dole out all kinds of pain, including to us. I mean, this doesn't turn out well for anybody. No, no, right. <laughs> not him, right. you know, not him for sure. Um, th- this marriage. But, but it's a course that he has pursued. And again, uh, you know, you don't just sort of by luck and happenstance become the bishop. You know, this is a, this is a calculated move. This is a hierarchy that he has ascended and he's done that by applying these stern principles mm-hmm. of the most austere, severe type of Protestantism, you know. And yeah. certainly, that's nothing that's unique to Protestants. You can have, you know, Catholics or people of any number of different faiths have this same kind of degree of control and, and intense, you know, hostility towards any perceived challengers. But uh, this is a particular type of religious expression that Bergman himself was you know had experience he's exploring this aspect and even though it is more universal it is in this case a particular thing from his own his own experiences yeah and i also to think about the the bishop's perception of the theatrical community i mean we know that especially in this society Mm -hmm. people in the theater were seen as loose morals indulgent hedonistic worldly deceived, besotted by sin. I mean, you can go on and on. And, you know, the evidence is there that according to a strict <laughs> morality. We just watched it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so there is, you know, I can almost imagine from the bishop's perspective, if we want to put it in terms of uh, the culture wars that we talk about today, this is where the, uh, you know, the, the extreme conservative has sort of purloined one of the jewels of the uh, the worldly mm. theatrical realm mm. uh, this beautiful woman has been kind of brought over to this other side now so i mean there's all sorts of levels of of interpersonal dynamics beyond even just well, yeah. you know the male female uh you know stepfather stepchildren thing going on here but but also from the children again bergman he does give this guy as abhorrent as he may be some some moments where we can look at him and say, oh man, I'm sorry you've been through that. I mean, you mentioned yeah. he's lost his family. Mm-hmm. And Alexander says he got visited by the family's ghost to say that the bishop did it. I mean, that's yeah. cruel, but you get oh. what, you get where Alexander's coming from too. Yeah. He's, you know, yeah. he's had it, but, but that's, I don't it's know. a way of it's a way for him to get a little bit of revenge for all the deprivations that mm-hmm. he's experienced. Which, partly, um, again, if you go back to Alexander's point of view, uh, his father died, um, or at least the man he identifies as his father. <laughs> well, if God is running this universe, if God is the reason that everything happens and nothing happens without God's will, 
well, then God must be to blame for this. God inflicted this punishment in my life or this, not this punishment, but this misery. And, and here's this man, this bishop, this man of God who claims to represent that sovereign deity. So, you know, this becomes a very deep-seated existential conflict between the boy and the creator uh, or the the being that is supposedly responsible for all of this sadness and loss that suddenly he has you know, experienced through no fault of his own he's just living a good old life and everything's wonderful and now all of a sudden it's all taken away well there's somebody yeah. must be to blame for that and it becomes Edward, this, and yeah. oh sorry I, I was gonna say the bishop himself probably believes some of this. This isn't just a childish sure. notion right. of guilt right. and punishment. I think the bishop sees that, okay, you've had your life. Now it's time for you to transform, and I now need to get strict with these kids because we don't want them going down the path they were going down. Exactly. Look he's where that led. He's raising the child. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's reforming them. He wants to, to walk mm-hmm. the straight and narrow. And so, you know, we talk about tough love in other types of, mm-hmm. of making a man out of this kid. You know, he, he's this little foppish you know uh daydreamer we're gonna we're gonna give him some discipline some stern stuff and and he will appreciate it later you know i i punish you out of love my son and and the jostling and the grabbing (laughs) and and you know he you know even the corporal punishment he he tries to persuade alexander to tell the truth and don't make me have to beat you, you know? <laughs> well, you know, Alexander's not going to yield that quickly. It's really intense. Uh, yeah, even as I just sort of th- sit here reliving and, and thinking through those scenes, such such palpable drama in, in this battle of wills between this young boy just coming into his own and this man with this sterling reputation, this authoritative role in his community and society, uh, who's going to be the first to blink? Who's what? What's going to give here? It's it's pretty pretty <laughs> impressive, pretty powerful. So Merry Christmas, everybody! <laughs> um, <laughs> again, uh, I guess I say that to transition a little bit because sure. amazingly, the film still, despite all of that, still manages to kind of turn things around a little bit and reintroduce just maybe a bit of the whimsy. And the the celebration, the celebratory nature that we captured in the first little bit as we come together after some horrible or just absolutely horrific um, incidents. I don't know if we want to get into detail, but they're they're there. And Emily is a widow once again. And they they are saved. Before that even happens, the children are essentially whisked away and protected by... Uh, by by Isaac, the the Jewish yeah. uh, uh, friend from the beginning, and they all managed to come back together to celebrate uh, a christening, essentially, you know, a birth yeah. and and um, baptism of Emily's new child, who is you know fatherless, and also another child. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Gustav and Mai, the the, uh, the the one of the sons of the of the you know the heads of the family. Uh, knocked up one of the servant women, I guess, to put it yeah. kind of crassly there, uh, and yet it's still not surprisingly, it's, it's, yeah, right. But it's <laughs> and still probably not very... the first, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's it's an accommodation that the family has has learned to make. There's no scandal. <laughs> there's no outrage. There's no threats of divorce. Uh, this this child, this illegitimate, you know, to use another kind of questionable word, uh, she also is part of 
the family and and uh, one of the concluding scenes of the film is his uh is gustav the father's uh very open and very enthusiastic embrace and celebration of this young life so yeah, yeah. it's it is it's all quite affirming and, and quite quite warm and yet you know there are still complications even i mean you're really cutting way to the very end there uh, yeah, it turns out that yeah. my wants to kind of move away and take the daughter with her and run her own life and kind of leave father in the dust so <laughs> even gustav uh, you know for all of his fine words may discover that uh this little plaything that he had his little side rendezvous with is not uh the perfectly uh supplicant uh willing to follow his lead yeah you know, she has a mind and will of her own and he's mm-hmm. going to have to deal with the fact that uh one of his children is out there living a life that he may not be, have much to do with well so we have a time limit tonight and yeah. clearly that was foolish of me to impose <laughs> because we yeah. I, I just feel like i'm racing through every little thing and skipping everything that that else that's interesting to you know to to get done here but I yeah. do want to bring up something. Sure. Um, when we first met, one of the first episodes we ever recorded of the Eclipse Viewer was on the first films of Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. And we took some time there to discuss why we care about the extra stuff. I'm trying to bring this back to this being a box set that's almost a celebration of mm-hmm. this film. Why do we care about Ingmar Bergman's making of Fanny and Alexander? Why do we care about Peter Cowie's commentary, which does go into the film, but honestly is so much about Ingmar Bergman? Why do we care about the life of this artist versus, you know, any other number of artists? Why does that inform this film? Uh, I mean, it is somewhat biographical, but why do we, what is there there? And we kind of landed, I don't know if you remember any mm-hmm. of this, and that's fine. Yeah. I, um, no, I'm curious where you're going to go with this. <laughs> well, we kind of said, you know, yeah. sometimes the, the artist's life is the art and they find oh, different yeah. ways of, of capturing that and of portraying mm-hmm. it out there. And so you do want to look behind the scenes because the, the life is fairly fascinating, complex, sometimes um, awful, and not exemplary. We're not trying yeah. to say you should go and become like Ingmar Bergman um, and, and live the life he lived. It was hard. Even he would for say that, people. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, <laughs> right. and yet he's able to capture these difficulties, sometimes, sometimes by casting the very people he's having the difficulties with. Nope, I mean, yeah. it, right, right, right. <laughs> And he's this, just gone through a painful breakup or he's with this person, but he's having an affair with that person and they're both in the same movie. And they know <laughs> it. It's not like he's playing <laughs> right. games. Right, right, um, right. I, And in this film, he he casts a lot of old favorites from his you know past past movies, as well as new faces. Mm-hmm. Also some an ex-wife to come out and play the piano at one point because she was a piano, yeah. you know, uh, She performer. could bring some uh, detail to the, to the yeah. know, festivities there, right? Uh, and so I, I do think this box set is a box set. You know, it is not just oh, yeah. um, the film Fanny and Alexander. It's it's great to see the differences between the theatrical version and the television version. It's great to see how well he's able to capture these. I mean, how does someone ever come to terms with some of this stuff in their own life to be able to put it out on film? Again, without necessarily coming to conclusions, but nevertheless an enriching exploration for the rest of us. I just don't get it. And yet Bergman can. 
So it's, yeah. it's amazing to me. Well, I think I think what you said about the life being a pretty major part of the art is 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 very applicable here. I mean, Bergman he wrote uh, autobiographically both in his films as well as his own story. I mean, he he wrote like two autobiographies, one more of a kind of a literary narrative just kind of describing different incidents and scenes from his life called the magic lantern and another one called images where he really kind of takes each film and kind of deals with how it reflected on his own personal experience you know either whether it's the making of the film or the themes that are touched on within the content of each production i think it's just because he had such an amazing track record i mean really you know if even if you just start with um like the the summer with monica summer interlude and you know so those mm-hmm. early 50s where he just really started knocking it out of the park film after film after film uh for the better part of three decades and into you know the fourth decade here in the early 80s i mean the fact that and then he's not just impressive on some technical level though he always is but he he just touches on ideas and experiences and emotions and perceptions i mean he asks all the big questions of life and he portrays them all with such brilliant precision insight uh, he's challenging. He's funny. I mean, again, you know, there's all that you know reputation of gloom and doom and austerity, but there's so much richness. There's so much wit and humor. Once you tap into that, and once you're kind of on his wavelength, uh, even his most serious, you know, uh, daunting films um, dealing with you know such depressing themes, things like shame and the hour of the wolf and you know, the Virgin Spring. I mean, heavy as heavy gets when you really get... Cries and whispers. Cries and whispers, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's still, like, this this vibrant humanity that, that courses through all of them. And then there are the funny ones, the smiles of a summer night. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so so many films. You know, the, the Magician has some really great droll humor. And then this one here, I think, I think the fact that it just, it all sort of culminates uh, in this spectacular sweeping saga of a family that incorporates all all the elements i've already mentioned but you know the mysticism the spirituality the earthiness the sadness the loss uh, the the wonder the dreams it's it's just all there and uh, so yeah I, I think understanding the person who is largely responsible for putting all of this fantastic art uh, into the permanent record you know uh it is regrettable that none of us will have a chance to see his plays or or what he put Mm -hmm. on the stage but i'm so glad that he was never content just to be a theatrical director that he did make movies and gives us so much to to ponder and just to simply you know sit back and enjoy and marvel at i think he's just you know again (laughs) you know probably the greatest director of all time just in terms of how he touched touches my life and 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 uh my experience and has just opened up so many insights uh i will always be grateful that uh, ingmar bergman did what he did in this world we keep coming back to him again yep, almost yep. a decade ago we started our podcasting not quite i don't think it was the first first thing we recorded uh, together but it was pretty close yeah i think we, we made a priority to get to it i think the next one we had was the jean-pierre Garin films because mm-hmm. that had already been announced but uh yeah, we made a beeline for Bergman, and I don't think we're done with them yet. You know, no, no, we'll be coming back, and and I guess to point people, you know, we do have that great box set, but you and I have had a 
I've been pretty fortunate. You and I have talked about many, many of his films, not just oh, yeah. in that first films of Ingmar Bergman Eclipse set, but we had a, a lovely series and in, in, in a summer not too long ago, but now it's mm. getting further into the past yeah, where we yeah, were with right? Scott and I talking about Smiles of a Summer Night and Summer Interlude and Summer with Monica. And we did another trilogy with the Winter Light and Through a Glass Darkly and The Silence. I think it was um, us mm-hmm. with uh, Scott and Arik. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about The Seventh Sill. Uh, I've just loved it. And, you know, there's a lot more we could, we could go on to for sure. But, but again, this does feel like a fitting capstone. As much as I love each and every one of those films and could always watch them. I do. I, I, Bergman is the director I watch over and over again, more than anybody else. Uh, his films just feel like they, they should be explored for me in my own life. And as I try to, to grapple with things and understand my position, even when I don't land where he does, which is probably rarely, you know, I don't think I ever am like, Oh, he, that that's the way I think I should look at things. But the fact that he is, and that he is empathetic, just really, really speaks to me and makes me keep going to him. And I, you know, I'll probably watch, I, I honestly think, and I don't know, but I think I'll probably watch at least part one of this again here in the next few days as we keep getting closer to Christmas. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just yeah. that delightful. It absolutely is. So, well, David, thanks again. Anything that you want to throw in before we close the, the book today? You, on No, this I, mean, episode? I, I definitely would recommend watching both the theatrical and the TV mm-hmm. versions and doing some comparisons. One, I guess one thing I wanted to say that was kind of interesting to me is the difference in the death scenes of Oscar in the TV version and in the theatrical. In the theatrical, Alexander comes up and, you know, takes his father's hand and Oscar kind of grimaces. He shields his eyes from the light and then he passes on. And the, in the TV version, the longer cut, there's, there's that scene, but then there's a whole exchange between Oscar and Emily about how he wants her to take over the theater. And I, that, that, that to me was such a crucial scene, but it really changed the dynamics. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying one is better than the other, but they're two, you know, it's the same event, if you will, but with two different flavors uh, cast over them based on the editorial decisions. And I think even just as a, as a primer on movie making and, and the, and the choices that Bergman made putting these two different versions together, it's really fascinating what he chose to put into one version and keep out of the shorter one. So um, it's a commitment, but definitely worth the the eight to 10 hours or more that it is going (laughs) to take you to get through all of that. So the first uh, time, yeah, the, the first, first time. time. Yeah. Then you got yeah. to do it again and again, if That's if you right. if you care to, of course, it's yeah. definitely worth it. Well, listeners, thanks again. Um, it's the coming to the end of twenty twenty one. We hope that you're having a, a good end of the year. We hope that you have bright things on the horizon. Yes, and we certainly look forward to coming back with more inside the box in twenty twenty two. All right. Thanks, All things David. Are possible. Thanks, Trevor. Have a great holiday season. <laughs> we'll be talking to you soon, man. <laughs>